Number 14, Ephesians, 3rd quarter, 2023, John Pauline. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen. We're going to do number 14, Ephesians in the Heart on the Quarter on Ephesians. Dr. John Pauline is our moderator, and our opening prayer is going to be given by Nancy. Dear Father in Heaven, thank you for this wonderful opportunity today to study your word with Dr. Pauline and with many of your friends from different parts of the world. And please help us to increase our knowledge and understanding of your character and government in the setting of the great controversy. I also ask for a very special blessing for each one of us, wherever we are, that we will be able to continue with the honor of sharing this good news about you with ever more clarity, joy, and courage. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So this is the last in a series of studies on the letter to the Ephesians by the Apostle Paul. And what we're going to do is sort of a big picture summary of Ephesians. It's only six chapters long, so we'll be reading a lot of the letter and pondering its bigger message. If you go to the handout, number one, it gives a summary of what we'll be doing. It says, the letter to the Ephesians is like the view from the top of a high mountain. It offers a clear but distant view of the entire landscape. Rather than focusing on issues of local concern, as Paul often does, he addresses issues in this letter that affect believers everywhere and throughout time. In a way, this letter addresses all of us more directly than the rest of Paul's letters. In this concluding lesson on the letter to the Ephesians, we will take a chapter-by-chapter approach to the whole book. So we plan to touch base on each of the six chapters and seek to understand the big picture of the book as a whole. With that in mind, let's go to number two in the handout, which starts out saying, read Ephesians 1, 3 to 14. And what I want you to do while Terry reads that passage, I want you to ask yourself the question, what is the key theme here? What is being repeated over and over again? All right, so what's the key theme of this opening chapter of Ephesians? Uh, Terry, if you would read verses 3 through 14 of chapter 1, and I invite everyone to follow closely along. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, just as he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless before him in love. He destined us for adoption as his children through Jesus Christ, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace that he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace that he lavished on us. With all wisdom and insight, he has made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure that he set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time, to gather up all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In Christ, we have also obtained an inheritance, having been destined according to the purpose of him who accomplishes all things according to his counsel and will, so that we, who were the first to set our hope on Christ, might live for the praise of his glory. In him, you also, when you had heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and had believed in him, were marked with the seal of the promised Holy Spirit 
This is the pledge of our inheritance towards redemption as God's own people to the praise of his glory. Now, we noticed the first time we went through this passage, we made the point that this is actually one single sentence in the Greek language. It may be five or ten or even a dozen sentences in your English translation, but those are a translator's prejudice, if you will. The actual fact is that there's simply one sentence here. And so the question is, what is the key theme of this sentence? What is repeated over and over again? And I suspect you probably noticed 11 times it says, in Christ, in him, in the beloved, etc., over and over again. So whenever in a single sentence a phrase is brought out 11 different times, that's probably important to the author's purpose. So every gift that God has to give comes to us in Christ. So the question I have for you to consider, what does in Christ mean? How do you understand this term? If everything that matters comes to us in Christ, what does in Christ mean? All right, Lou, why don't you start us out? In my version, it left out the promised Holy Spirit, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance. That's in verse 13 and 14. And I didn't hear that in the reading we did, but it's a gift. And the Holy Spirit is God's greatest gift to us. Oh, and of course, grace is it's all given to us. It's not anything we can do or achieve at all. It's a gift. All right. I do believe Holy Spirit was in there, but the New Revised Standard sometimes seeks to provide an English word order that doesn't always follow the Greek. The Greek, when you have one sentence that's 12 verses long, that's a very complex sentence. So, yeah, it may have come through in a different way, and perhaps Terry can clarify that for us. Yes, verse 13, it says, we're marked with the seal of the promised Holy Spirit. Okay, so it it is in there, yeah. But it's in there in a different way than it was in Lou's translation. All right, so we still have the question before us. What does in Christ mean? Mario? In Christ has got two connotations to it from my side. It can mean to be part of Christ, and that is to live life as a part of God instead of separation from him. The next thought was the aspect of unity, where we are in unity with Christ, in Christ. So Mm -hmm. it's the aspect of unity that comes through. It's a sentence of praise. Thanks. Mm -hmm. Very interesting. So what I hear you saying is that in various ways, this is expressing relationship. We are connected to God through Christ. Uh, Excellent. All right, Larry. One of the things that struck me as I read this whole book this morning, and I don't know if Paul does this frequently, but in this book, he gives a really tight argument, and then he goes on to expand upon it throughout the final four chapters. And one of the things that he keeps pounding on, I think, is the in Christ versus out of Christ idea that things happen in the world and around us, to us, with us, that we are involved in. He contrasts being in Christ lifestyle versus out of Christ lifestyle. And is that kind of what he is trying to, he's making a statement here that's a bold statement that he's later on going to spend quite a bit of time explaining. So do I hear you right? You're suggesting in Christ has something of a lifestyle component that those who are connected to Christ will live differently. Yes. 
Robert. To live in Christ is to accept his teachings of God and to internalize them. All right, so in Christ is sort of expression of discipleship in your expression. Henry? It calls my attention that, yes, the writer here uses in Christ multiple times. He is using this in Christ, at least from my perspective, as a vehicle. Christ being in Christ means the vehicle that God, to whom the writer Paul is addressing this long sentence, praise to God because in Christ he did so many things, so many blessings, but the praise is gone to God. So to me, the meaning of this repetition is just kind of going back to John 14 verses 8 and 9 when Philip asked Jesus to show them the Father and then Jesus responds, well, I have been with you guys all of this time and you're still asking about the Father. You have seen me, you have seen the Father. So I think that Paul, what he's saying in here is, yes, we didn't have any other way to know this wonderful God to whom we are giving praises today. I'm paraphrasing now verse 3 of Ephesians 1, when he says, praise be to God. And then verse 4, because he chose us in him, in Christ. And verse 5, in love, he predestines us and continues going in verse 7, in accordance with the riches of God's grace, that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. And God made known to us the mystery of his will. So I think that Paul is repeatedly insisting that Jesus was the manifestation, the visible portrait of this wonderful God that we still struggle to see because we try to see a different one than what Jesus has shown. That's, to me, what in Christ means. If I can rephrase you, maybe just see if this is what you're saying. Jesus is kind of like a pipe or a vehicle that brings us to God or connects us to God. And not o only... Oversimplified, yeah. Yes, and to, not only to bring us to him, but to show him to us in a, a most clear way. A two-way conduit, yes. Excellent. Okay, Darla. So maybe even more organic in that in Acts 17, 28, it says that in him, we live and move and have our being. I think that's for everyone. And so in Christ is being aware of that all the time. It's a truth that in God, we move and breathe and have our being. So being in Christ is being conscious and cognizant of his presence, his guidance. In Christ, we can love better. So it's really us being aware. I am in Christ. That's how I move and breathe and have my being. You bring up Acts 17, and an interesting side piece of that is Paul there is not talking to Christians or Jews. He's talking to the pagan philosophers in Athens and recognizing there's a certain in God. He's not talking in Christ here because he hasn't introduced them yet, but that in God, there is a sense that everything that we have comes from a connection with God. Livius. The phrases that kind of stick out for me in this passage are adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. And verse 7, in him we have redemption through his blood, so through his life. I think that 
in Jesus, God has shown us what it means to be a son. He wants us to be adopted. He wants to adopt us. That is his will, right? That's the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, to be adopted to himself, to the divine family, if you will. And Jesus is a reflection of what it means to be a son. And when we participate in that characterological transformation, we can be adopted. All right, let me just pause here. I see several hands. So let me just pause here. Because in a way, if you're struggling a little with this concept of in Christ, in part, it was an unfair question, simply because the phrase appears 164 times in the New Testament. And it's used widely, particularly by Paul. But the scholars who have studied those 164 with care have come up with five meanings for the phrase in different contexts. So let me just toss those by you a little bit, and you can connect them. Those who are still speaking may say, oh yeah, what I was going to say seems to connect with that one, or maybe you'll come up with one that the scholars haven't seen. But there's at least five ways the phrase is understood in New Testament scholarship. One is a historical sense that in Christ we have a new personal history, a new identity, right? So the historical sense that in Christ means that something happened in Christ that impacts, changes our lives in a tremendous sense. A second is the spiritual sense that through the Holy Spirit, we are connected to God in actuality. So could it be saying in Christ, meaning through the Holy Spirit, we are connected? The third is the ecclesiological sense. The church is the body of Christ. When you're in the church, you are in Christ. You are part of his body. The body metaphor is a third way that in Christ seems to be used. The fourth is the eschatological sense. The dead in Christ will rise first. That this in Christ is the means by which we one day have eternal life. And then the fifth is the ethical sense, and I heard echoes of that, certainly, uh, maybe all of these and things that you have been saying. The ethical sense is that those who are in Christ will behave differently than they did before. So as scholars go through all the different uses of in Christ in the New Testament, they've come up with these five, at least, to connect. All right. I'll talk about which of these seems to be central for Ephesians in a little bit, but first, Larry... Is it possible that the idea of a Christ who is God and who has all of heaven and the preaching that is being done is about this person who was a human, who was God, but was crucified? Because that's a novel idea really to the Greek, and it's a heretical idea to the Jew because they're still waiting and they were still waiting at the time for Messiah to come. Is he trying to really bring the emphasis that no, because he does say that all of the Godhead, basically all of heaven, all authority is given to Christ. So he is trying to make the case that Christ, when you think of God, is really the supreme being making the case for any Jewish listeners. Mm. That almost sounds like the eschatological sense in that everything that you had hoped for in the Old Testament, everything you'd hoped for as Israel is now fulfilled in the Messiah who has now come. Yeah, I think that's very, very possible. Yeah. Bill? The phrase in Christ to me, it was already stated that it, about relationship. And that reminded me in John 17, we're in Jesus' prayer and he's saying in verse 23, I in them and you and me, may they be brought into complete unity. 
And so it seems that this in Christ is this all-encompassing relationship between Father, Son, and us. Mm. It's almost like we are a triangle of unity. Mm. It's interesting, listening to the comments, it seems like we're more familiar with this concept in John, perhaps, than we are in Paul, because we several times now we've been referring back to the Gospel of John. There's nothing wrong with that, but simply that's interesting to me that Paul's concept of in Christ is perhaps a little more unfamiliar to most of us than John's. And so that makes it worthwhile studying this book, doesn't it? Lou? One of the verses that I just love in Ephesians, the first chapter is verse four, for he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. And isn't that amazing that he chose, that goes clear down to each one of us. He chose us and he chose everybody. He wants everybody to be saved, but he gave us power of choice. But to think that even before the world was created in a sense, God had us in mind and the plan of salvation was there. And I just think that's such a beautiful promise and gift. In Ephesians itself, it seems that Paul defines in Christ in chapter two, and we will read the first 10 verses of chapter two. But there he talks about identifying with the resurrection, ascension, and enthronement of Christ. In Ephesians 2, he says, we were raised with him. We ascended with him to heaven. We sat down at the right hand of God with him. So the in Christ seems to be that Jesus went through this pattern, death, resurrection, ascension, enthronement, that in Christ, when we identify with Christ, we ourselves go through those same stages. So Paul seems to, in chapter 2, be saying this idea of a new personal history, a new reality. We are no longer just human beings on this earth. We're seated at the right hand of God in Christ. That is a very real sense in which we have been elevated into the Godhead, the throne of the universe. And that's an incredible concept. We'll explore that a little bit more in a bit. There is one other possibility, though, and that is at the end of chapter one, he does mention the body of Christ, the ecclesiological approach. So I think primarily it's this historical approach that Paul has in mind when he says in Christ, but it may be more than that. Mario? I don't mean to jump to chapter three, but the reference there in verse nine, which is the New King James Version, which is through Christ Jesus. And the other referring to God who created all things through Christ Jesus, which is the same as in Christ Jesus. So there are again two things that stands out for me. And that is that when it's talking about through Jesus or in Christ, Jesus was the active agent of creation. And he also existed before he was born. Mm -hmm. And that's in Micah 5, verse 2, John 1, verse 1 to 3, but specifically 3, and also Genesis 1, verse 26, where it's again referring to the we in us, right? So that's the one aspect. The other aspect is in verse 10, where it's talking about in verse 9, it's creation. He created all things through Christ or in Christ. Verse 10 then says, to the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places. So that's also making us part of Christ in terms of unity, not in terms of body, but through the body of the church and for the heavenly places. 
So again, like Job, it's an example of Christ's life on earth and the plan of redemption and how it unfolded. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, no problem jumping to chapter three because I just jumped to chapter two. So you were following hopefully a good example on that. Yes. And I think that's worth coming back to what you have said in the text that you have shared. Before we go further, though, I want to go to the next question in number two. According to this passage, what is the central issue in the cosmic conflict? And there we need to go to verses nine and ten. Ephesians 1, verses 9 and 10. He has made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure that he set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time, to gather up all things in him, things in heaven, and things on earth. Right, so Ephesians 1 is the most comprehensive text in the Bible. It goes from eternity past to eternity future. And in the center of that passage, It brings together the key point. If you were to ask God, what's the one thing? What is the one thing ultimately that matters? What's the whole cosmic conflict about? And the answer is to unify the universe. There's no mention of Satan here. There's no mention of a problem. But when it says the number one issue is to unify the universe, then it implies that the universe is not unified, that is broken in some way. It is separated. It is fragmented. And so in the context of a cosmic conflict and a broken universe, the number one priority ultimately is to unify the universe. And God chooses to do that in Christ. As Mario said, through Christ is definitely a way that one could express that in this particular case. But this in Christ becomes the means, the vehicle, as some of you have said, by which God accomplishes the purpose of unifying the entire universe. All right, so let's skip over number three. All right, number four. What, in your view, is the point of Ephesians 2, 1 to 10? And we're putting Terry to work in this particular session, so please go ahead with verses 1 to 10 of chapter 2. You were dead through the trespasses and sins in which you once lived, following the course of this world following the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work among those who are disobedient. All of us once lived among them in the passions of our flesh, following the desires of flesh and senses, and we were by nature children of wrath like everyone else. But God, who is rich in mercy, out of the great love with which he loved us even when we were dead through our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing, It is the gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are what he has made us, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand to be our way of life. 
right? So here you see, in a sense, a nutshell description of the Christian life. It begins alienated from God, out of Christ, as some of you have mentioned, and that it is God's initiative to connect us with Christ. And this is something that God does in verses 4, 5, and 6. We are connected with Christ. We are in relationship with Christ. We are treated as if we were Christ, that his resurrection and his ascension and his enthronement are ours as well. So what Christ has done for us personally is in view here. Christ has worked personally for us. We are in solidarity with Christ. So this is an amazing thing in verses 4 through 6. Because of his great love for us, God is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. That's the resurrection, all right? When Christ was raised from the dead, we were made alive in him when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you've been saved. And God raised us up with Christ as the ascension and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ. So here you have an amazing idea that what happens to Christ automatically happens to us when we're in him. So this in him is a transformation of identity, a new connection, a new history. When you look at your own past, it's a history of failure, isn't it? We can all look back at things, and it happens to me at least once a week. I think of some time when I really, really embarrassingly totally screwed up, and you'd like to just wipe it off the record. That's your history, but it marks you. And what the gospel does is offer us a new history that the perfect life of Jesus Christ and everything that he went through becomes our history. And when you realize you have a new history, that those old screw-ups no longer define you, it has a transformative effect on us. That seems to be the genius of what Paul is saying here. God wants to unify the universe in Christ. And for starters, he does that by unifying us with Christ. Iris. I wonder if a medical metaphor captures kind of this phenomenon of what's happening. We are nowadays very familiar with leukemia. And so what happens is that then our blood system produces these cancerous cells instead of healthy blood cells. And we have, of course, the whole gamut of medical therapies. And sometimes when chemotherapy doesn't work and people become sick again, we do stem cell transplantation. And I'm wondering if that is kind of a picture for this in Christ. What we do medically is we wipe out the bone marrow and we transplant from a donor a healthy stem cell that then allows to reset the entire blood system. And I'm wondering if that even captures it. I think what happened through the fall is that it is kind of like this cancer, that leukemia. Our body just keeps producing this naturally. And... In Christ, we have this stem cell transplantation where all of a sudden God produces in us, instead of rebellion, his goodness, his character. We have a new start and something good can come out of us that is from him. I think Paul would love that analogy. And he actually has a term, I think, which fits that perfectly. And that is Christ in you. See, here he's talking about we are in Christ. 
But when we are in Christ, he also is in us. And that's where the, the transformation comes. So by being in solidarity with Christ, it becomes a two-way street. And not only do we have a new past, but we have a new present and a new future. And the two come together. So yeah, any single metaphor falls short of the total reality. But Paul uses multiple metaphors to try to make this point. Okay, Sean. The significance of the expression in Christ in chapter one, which is simply a sentence, seems to be interestingly contrasted with, or as Paul being the great preacher and writer and teacher that he was, he realized that the in Christ needed an object. And so as powerfully and repeatedly as he uses the phrase in Christ in chapter one, he uses this object, you, we, us, 17 times, as translated in my English version, 17 times in the first 10 verses of chapter two. So the power of connecting this rather difficult conceptualization of what it means to be in Christ, I think he very nicely brings home with, you are the object of this union that I am trying to describe in chapter one. The in Christness has you as the subject. I just found that fascinating and really assuring that thematically, Paul is introducing, delivering, and concluding me, concluding that I personally am involved in this union. Here's the interesting thing that in Christ, this whole idea of solidarity, okay, that in the person of Jesus, humanity has been elevated into the Godhead. Now, that has, I think, powerful implications for how we treat the handicapped, for example. I think there's a tendency to diminish the handicapped, saying, oh, you know, they're only like partly human, and so they're not as important, etc. When you realize that every human being is in Christ in that sense, that humanity has already been elevated, I think this has an impact on race relations, age discrimination. There are so many ways in which we tend to marginalize other people. And I think when we realize that the human context has been raised into divinity, that God sees infinite value in every human being because they are in Christ. And Ellen White has a way of expressing it that's different from Paul's. And that is, everyone is a soul for whom Christ died. And that when we realize that Christ died for all, then every person we meet, regardless of how annoying, regardless of how different, every person we meet is a soul for whom Christ died. Every person we meet has been elevated potentially into the Godhead in Christ. Every person is in the image of God. And it's amazing, for example, that for more than a thousand years of Christian history, Christians were able to tolerate slavery, even though they knew some of these things. How can one do that when God sees such high value in other people? So that's one point I think that comes out of this. And another is, why does Paul even have to say these things? Why does he say them over and over again? Because they're not obvious. Our eyes are connected to this world. Our eyes are surrounded by four walls most of the time. Our vision is limited. And Paul is trying to raise our vision to a higher reality that's not natural to the carnal human nature. And so he says this over and over again, beats it into the ground because it's so hard for us to grasp. And that's why we have classes like Pine Null, 
because we need to have our minds raised above the four walls and to see a bigger picture. Okay, Livius. I was really attracted to verse 10. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus. And I looked up this word workmanship, and it's a word that is translated things that is made workmanship, that which has been made. It alludes to creation, God as creator. And so he's creating something new here. And then I went to Hebrews 5, 9, where the author says, with respect to Jesus and being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. So I wonder if this goes a little deeper and it goes to the level of humanity. There is a new species, human. I think Paul also talks about being reborn into the second Adam, a second, a new generation. And then I went to, had a reference here to Ephesians 4.24, and maybe about this business about being in Christ, 4.24, it talks about putting on the new self. I think this is Jesus, right? Putting on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness, back to Hebrews 5.9. So this in Christ maybe is being part of a new humanity, something that Jesus achieved and accomplished. Sounds good. Let's go to another text. You may pick up the pace just a little bit because Ephesians is so rich. But let's look at verses 11 through 18, because here Paul takes it to another level. He's first talked about the universal situation. Then he's talked about how we as individuals fit into that. We are in Christ in his resurrection, ascension, and enthronement. But now he talks about how human beings relate to each other. Verses 11 to 18 of chapter 2. So then... Remember that at one time, you Gentiles by birth, called the uncircumcision by those who are called the circumcision, a physical circumcision made in the flesh by human hands, remember that you were at that time without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he is our peace. In his flesh, he has made both groups into one and has broken down the dividing wall, that is, the hostility between us. He has abolished the law with its commandments and ordinances so that he might create in himself one new humanity in place of the two thus making peace, and might reconcile both groups to God in one body through the cross, thus putting to death that hostility through it. So he came and proclaimed peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him, both of us have access in one spirit to the Father. Do you see Paul's argument here? He says, if we are in solidarity with Christ, if all of us are in solidarity with Christ, then it stands to reason that we are in solidarity with each other. If we're all connected to Christ, then we're all connected to each other as well. And Paul draws from that, that God's plan goes far beyond Israel, that if all humanity is in solidarity with Christ, if all humanity has been elevated to the right hand of God, in Christ, then all humanity is in solidarity with each other. We're all there together with him and to make distinctions among human beings. So you guys are in and you guys are out does not seem to be the right approach to that reality. So 
Paul in here talks about the division between Jew and Gentile as a poster child, if you wish, for the divisions in the human race and how solidarity with Christ breaks down those divisions and helps us to live in solidarity with each other. We spent quite a bit of time on that earlier, so we won't go further with that. But before we go ahead to chapter 3, Mario has a comment. If I look at the two parts of that chapter that were read, verse 8 and 9 of chapter 2, linking up with what was just read now from verse 11 onwards, you know, for by grace you who have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. Now, this is commonly thrown around, and I think we don't always grasp it with taking into account verse 9, not of works, okay, lest anyone should boast. In verse 10 and from 11 onwards, which clarifies this issue about by grace through faith. And what stood out for me was you have this grace by faith, not of works, but if you are in Christ, then the works would come, and not of ourselves, but because of love, which is the governing principle of the universe. Well said. Put succinctly, perhaps we are not saved by works, neither are we saved without them. It's one of those tensions in the Christian life, and Luther used to express it this way. He says, when I preach faith, people tend to forget about works. When I preach works, they tend to forget about faith, and that makes them like a drunken peasant. You put a drunken peasant on a horse, and what you know is he will fall off the horse. What you don't know is whether he will fall to the right or to the left. And, and he used that as sort of an analogy for the Christian struggle to get this tension right. We are saved not by works, but not without them either. Let's go on to chapter 3. And once again, we will take a larger picture. Terry, if you would read verses 1 through 13, and it says, What does Paul claim as a unique personal revelation from God about the church? When God spoke to Paul, what did he say? Verses 1 to 13. This is the reason that I, Paul, am a prisoner for Christ Jesus for the sake of you Gentiles. For surely you have already heard of the commission of God's grace that was given to me for you, and how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I wrote above in a few words, a reading of which will enable you to perceive my understanding of the mystery of Christ. In former generations, this mystery was not made known to humankind, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. That is, the Gentiles have become fellow heirs, members of the same body, and sharers in the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I have become a servant according to the gift of God's grace that was given to me by the working of his power. Although I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to me to bring to the Gentiles the news of the boundless riches of Christ and to make everyone see what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things, so that through the church the wisdom of God in its rich variety might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was in accordance with the eternal purpose that he has carried out in Christ Jesus, our Lord, in whom we have access to God in boldness and confidence through faith in him. I pray, therefore, that you may not lose heart over my sufferings for you. They are your glory. All right, so Paul, 
came to realize that when Jews came to Jesus Christ, when they came in solidarity with him, it was a fundamental transformation. But one thing was missing. They did not grasp that this solidarity with the Messiah should extend to the Gentiles. In other words, they saw the Gentiles, in a sense, maybe a bit like Adolf Hitler, as subhuman. They were human, but you know, somewhere between human and an ape. They were not worthy of full humanity. And the startling truth that Paul says, this came by revelation. I didn't figure this out myself. But by direct revelation, God showed me that the Gentiles should be included in this new humanity. And if they are included in this new humanity, then they too are heirs with Christ. They too are elevated to the throne, to the right hand of God in Christ. So Paul acknowledges that he probably wouldn't have figured this out either. And that maybe helps to explain why Christianity could go almost 2,000 years without abolishing slavery. Slavery makes no sense in the light of Christ, and yet Christians continue to practice it for many, many centuries. But humanity sometimes has mental blocks theologically. There are some things that this cannot be seen. And that's why the Adventist church was very wise not to create a creed which cannot be changed, but rather to create a system of beliefs for which the preamble says, this is where we're at today. This is our collective understanding of what it means to be a Seventh-day Adventist. But when we have further understanding or find better ways of expressing it, we will revisit and change these. And I've argued in high places that we should do that every generation, is to revisit the fundamentals and see if we do not see some things in Christ and in Scripture that we'd missed before, because it happens a lot. If God had not revealed this to Paul, we might still have slaves today. We might still be a Jewish sect as a Christian church. And that would leave out most of us in this Zoom room right now. So this is an incredible insight that God had to bestow miraculously, if you will, by revelation to Paul. Let's go back to verses 9 to 11 and read those again. Mario called our attention to it earlier. So Mario, we're coming back to you now. All right. Verses 9 to 11 of chapter 3. And to make everyone see what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things, so that through the church the wisdom of God in its rich variety might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was in accordance with the eternal purpose that he has carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord. All right, so the big question that arises, who are these rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms, okay? Is that the angelic orders of heaven, those who have never sinned? Is that the satanic orders? But what would they be doing in heavenly places is the question. So the heavenly places would steer one perhaps toward the good angels, but what exactly is going on here? Larry, perhaps you have an idea. Sadly, no. In thinking about what we've been reading so far, the famous quote is John 3.16, that God so loved the world. I grew up thinking that Paul never really spent much time talking about God's love. In this, what we've just been reading and discussing this morning, God's love came first. That love brought about the grace, and our response to that grace brought about a healing. And so I just am amazed that this picture that's put out in John 3.16, 
is so clearly represented here. It's like Waldo. If you don't know that Waldo's buried in the picture, you're not going to look for him. And so I just am so appreciative of how we this quarter have used all of this material and today to bring about that Paul really does talk. The foundation of what he goes on is based on God's love. And so thank you for bringing that out so far this morning. And maybe you've expressed very well why people tend to gravitate to John more than Paul. I think at least in the Adventist church, I think that would be the case. More familiar with John because he has the sound bites that are unmistakable. Paul requires a little depth of reflection before you get to every place that you want to get. All right, Mario. Yes, thanks. I'm thinking about the question that you posed in terms of the principalities and powers. Maybe if I can make reference to Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age. So if it's making reference to the same powers and principalities in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 9, then yes, it includes Satan and his hosts, those who followed him, the fallen angels. But I want to bring you to the point that Graham Maxwell also brings out quite clearly. And that is that sometimes we miss it when the Bible says, or when we think of human beings. So if you look at, I think it's verse 9, and to make all see, which is cosmic, what is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of all ages has been hidden in God, who created all things, all things, which includes humanity and the angels through Christ Jesus. And it's interesting that in the margin of my Bible, the through Jesus, it actually makes reference to the NU, which is the New Testament published in, I think it's the Nestle, Allen Greek New Testament and the United Bible Society's Greek New Testament. The through Jesus or in Christ is not mentioned in those translations, if I can put it that way. So it would be interesting to make the exercise, to do the exercise to see where Christ Jesus has been left out, especially in Ephesians. It's mentioned quite a lot in Christ, in Christ, in Christ. But that through Christ, when the reading was made, it wasn't read. It said through the church. So that's just an interesting observation. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The Nestle Aland and the UBS, those are Greek texts. And those texts are put together based on intensive analysis of the manuscripts that are out there. There's some 6,000 New Testament manuscripts, and, and there are thousands of minor differences between them. And so textual critics examine, you know, if a hundred manuscripts say this and one says that, you probably go with the hundred. If the earlier ones say this and the later ones say that, you probably go with the earlier ones. So there's processes that go through. I suspect in this case, since Paul so naturally says in Christ or in you, that if it's there in some manuscripts and not in others, it's more likely that a scribe would put it in because it's so frequent rather than take it out. So I think the judgment might be that if it was missing in a large number of manuscripts, it probably was missing in the original. But something you said, Mario, I want to underline, you're talking about verse 9 as having very universal concept everything, everyone, etc. So I think I hear you suggesting that this rulers and authorities, etc., may be both and, that it's both the good angels and also the evil angels. And I think that's my conclusion as well, but I like the way that you argued that. Patrick? 
Yeah, I was going to actually lean towards the rulers and the angels being the good ones, because the church is being used by God, according to what's being said here, to show his wisdom so that they can learn more about the wisdom of God. I'm not so sure that the evil ones want to learn anything more, but uh, the good ones <laughs> okay. too. And so that's why I was thinking, okay, yeah, we are a, a teaching implement for God to teach the good ones even more about his wisdom and his goodness. All right, yes. And so perhaps a both-and kind of thing is at work here. One challenge I think we have is, I don't know about the rest of you, but I think just generally people have the sense that when you talk about the evil angels and stuff, that they're kind of underground. They're down there, you know, where it's fiery and, you know, out of sight, uh, etc. And you do have that in the Bible. You have the concept of the abyss, this bottomless pit where the demons are confined. Jesus mentions that. Revelation mentions that. But in the ancient world, there was also the concept that the demons were in the air, that their abode was not underground, but in the air between us and heaven trying to barricade between the two. And so it's interesting, it says in one place, it talks about the prince of the power of the air. That seems to be a reference to that concept. And Jesus, when he ascends to heaven, proclaims to these authorities on his way up, like they're in the middle between him and heaven, he's passing through them and they can't stop him. And he's proclaiming defeat to them. So the New Testament exhibits both of these concepts. And the idea of rulers and authorities in heavenly places as demonic, which is clearly the case in Ephesians 6.12, as Mario has pointed out, cannot be ignored here. So I think the both and is probably the best way to go, that Paul understands that what is happening in the church is a witness to demons, but it's also a witness to heavenly places, to the good angels, etc. What would it be saying to the good angels? I think an interesting possibility is the reconciliation between Jew and Gentile, which is in a direct context here, verses 2 to 6. The reconciliation of Jew and Gentile is a model for the reconciliation that will have to happen when humanity is elevated to heaven at the second coming of Jesus. That's going to be a tough thing, I think, for the unfallen worlds. Will the universe, will the neighborhood go when these folk show up? You see? And so the unity of Jew and Gentile, the incorporation of the Gentiles is teaching the universe how to incorporate the redeemed when they come into heavenly places. But what would the unity of Jew and Gentile be teaching the demons, I guess, becomes the question. And maybe Henry can help us with that. Go ahead, Henry. I want to make a comment first about the first section that you were mentioning about the heavenly inhabitants getting ready to receive humans that have gone astray so badly, I think that in order to be up there, they should be ready already, right? They don't have to come to the end and say, hey, how are we going to be welcoming them? I will have doubts of neighbors like that that's getting ready to process that element. I think that was clarified during crucifixion. This is after crucifixion. This mystery is revealed to these heavenly beings or authorities through the church. I think that one can never be surprised or amazed enough about how loving God is. And this is an additional revelation of how a twisted, derailed 
humanity through the church starts to work together, sharing the same type of God that God is showing that will reveal to these heavenly authorities how marvelous, how powerful is God's love that allows even that to happen, even that crooked, twisted people can start loving each other without barriers. And that's a revelation of how big, and I think we all will continue to be surprised of new things that God will continue to do, revealing constantly that great love that we will never be able to grasp. That's the way that I see it. I don't think there is anything else that can be revealed to the fallen principalities. His love has been already revealed, and they will never be amazed about how loving is he. They will hate it all of the times because that is not in their nature. So that's the way that I see this mystery, an additional element of revelation, because we will never have enough to say, wow, we now know how loving God is. All right. Thank you, Henry. I take it your answer to the question is what would God show the demons through the church is probably nothing. We're getting close to the end of our time, but we're just at the halfway point of Ephesians. So let me move forward because what Paul has done is lay out the big picture here, healing the universe. You begin healing the universe by healing individuals, by connecting them with Christ. And then in their connection with Christ, they become reconciled to each other. And that reconciliation has a reverse effect way back at the beginning you know, healing the universe. So that's what these three chapters are doing. What Paul does in four, five, and six is now make it practical. How do you bring reconciliation between Jew and Gentile in the church? How do you combat the slings and arrows of Satan? How do you imitate God and love one another the way Christ has loved us? So the how-to is what happens in the latter part of Ephesians. And I think it's critical that, Terry, we read verses 11 to 16 of chapter 4 and a couple of other verses here as we draw to a close. The gifts that he gave were that some would be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until all of us come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to maturity, to the measure of the full stature of Christ. We must no longer be children tossed to and fro and blown about by every wind of doctrine, by people's trickery, by their craftiness in deceitful scheming. But speaking the truth in love, we must grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ from whom the whole body, joined and knitted together by every ligament with which it is equipped, as each part is working properly, promotes the body's growth in building itself up in love. All right, so a growing church, not just numerically, but in the essence of what a church is, a growing church is a church that's growing in love, growing in the ability to edify others and make life better for others. The gifts here, there's three gift lists in the New Testament. This one is leadership gifts, apostles, prophets, pastors, teachers. In other words, God will unify Jew and Gentile, unify the church by equipping the saints, by training them, enlightening them, improving them, 
with the goal of unity, of knowing God, knowing his character, spiritual maturity. We've talked about stages of faith at different times, likeness to Christ, growing in love. The opposite of that is immaturity, confusion, and division. So in each church, God uses the gifts to set a context of unity as a model of how God plans to heal the universe. And when a church is not in unity, there's confusion, division, immature faith. I think verses 22 to 24, we can't close without touching them. Ephesians 4, 22 to 24. You were taught to put away your former way of life, your old self, corrupt and deluded by its lusts, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to clothe yourselves with the new self, created according to the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So here Paul moves from the church to the individuals in the church, and each individual is part of a battle. We are part of this cosmic conflict. We are all torn between motives to do good and motives perhaps to do other things. And he invites each member to put on Christ, to put on the new history, to become what they are. And you could put it this way, in Ephesians 4, unity is built one church at a time. Unity is built one individual at a time. And Paul in chapter 4 lays out the how-to of that process. And perhaps it's summarized and capstoned in chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and live in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. All right, so he summarizes here that what we are about is imitating God. Here my mind goes to Gospel of John as well as the rest of us have done, where it talks about the unity of the Godhead, I and you and you and me, just as we are one, let they be one as we are one. So here Paul says that ultimately unity is achieved by imitating God. And when you imitate God and discover that God is other-centered love, then you become more and more. By beholding, we become changed. We become more and more like that. So the process is in the battle with Satan. And chapter 6 and chapter 4 both talk about that to a large degree. In the battle with Satan and the cosmic conflict, imitating God, growing in love, becomes the key and the answer to all of this. So Ephesians is an amazing book with the central theme, unity in Christ, connecting with Christ, connecting with one another, imitating God. This is the path that Paul lays out in Ephesians. Let's pray. We thank you, Lord. We have come this far, one of the more challenging books, and yet one of the more inspiring books in the Bible at the same time. We thank you for this conversation. We thank you for your presence. We thank you for your word and pray that you would continue to be with us throughout the week and the quarter to come. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.